I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to understand God in spirit and in truth. We're grateful you're here. We pray God's blessings upon seekers who are trying to understand things which aren't always talked about, uh, either in church or on television programs, but we try to hit it all. I had a person tell me Sunday how her Christian friends tell her not to watch or listen to me. Uh, the woman t has come out of Mormonism, and she asked them, how come? And there are an assortment of reasons that people have. Some say, I'm a cult leader. Uh, uh, it's so easy to say those things about people. You know, you can just sit, throw them out there, and they take on a life of their own, and uh, you have to live with them. Uh, some say I'm a heretic. In the truest sense of the word, that's true because a heretic is someone who doesn't uh, cling to orthodoxy in all ways. And uh, so I am heretical in certain areas, but uh, that carries a connotation that uh, is far worse than what the word really means. This specific woman was told by her Christian friends to stay away from me, and the reason was given, and this one hurts the most personally, is because I would lead her astray. That is, the, that is the big thing, that I am going to lead her astray. I understand the opinion and where it comes from, uh, but this woman really gave a good answer to her Christian friend. She said, you know, all the while I was LDS, you said you've got to come out, you've got to look at what your church teaches, you've got to look at the facts, be brave, be courageous, step outside of the Mormon box and examine the things that you believe. And she said, and I did. And I came to understand the truth. And she said, so my advice to you, she says to her Christian friends, is to do the same. Step out of your box. Examine the things that you're from. Look at the traditions that you've accepted. Challenge all those things. And, uh, and so I thought this was really strong advice. And it's hilarious how much Christians really do echo this fear that the LDS have. Christians believe, they'll say, oh, we're so, we're so open and free. I can't believe the LDS are so fearful. Actually, people who get religious get pretty fearful. They don't want to let go of things. They cling to things. So on September, uh, Friday, September 11th, we're bringing in an expert who will be here the 11th and the 12th. And his, uh, he's an expert in preterism. One of the things I'm being accused of is being dangerous and a heretic and, and uh, uh, leading people astray. His name's Dr. Don Preston. We invite, we encourage everybody who has a futuristic view or an amillennialist view or a post-trib view or a pre-trib view, all these views, come. Just like you tell your LDS friends, come and test your faith. Test the things that you have clung to because they've been taught to and see what you discover. Tell your friends uh, and see if they'll be willing to examine their own faith. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, what? as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. All right, uh, in the Gospel of John, the Lord utters some beautiful summaries of how to describe Christians. He says, you know it, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love 
one to another. Paul said in Galatians 5, 2, I think it was Galatians, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God for sweet-smelling savor. In his uh, first epistle, John wrote in 1 John 3, 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Uh, we say it often, but it really, I'm not sure it can be said too much. The importance and the priority of this Christian love caused Paul to write, though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and not have love, it profits me nothing. I have heard Christian love mocked quite a bit in recent weeks, especially in the face of the homosexuals wanting to get married and ISIS wanting to destroy good people and all these things that are going on in our society. Some Christians are mocking other Christians and saying they're loving too much, that uh, they're letting love get in the way of what they say is reason and truth and justice and virtue, also characteristics that God endorses. Is it possible to love too much in this world? I mean, is it loving to speak the truth no matter what the cost? I think it's absolutely loving to speak the truth, no matter how painful it is for people to hear. But what's in your heart when you're sharing that truth? Is your heart saying, I'm gonna get this guy? Or is your heart saying, I really care about you, and that's why I wanna share this truth? Is it loving to warn people people of some of the dangers that lie ahead if they continue on a course? I think that's very loving. But then again, what is motivating us to do it? So what are we to do then in the face of all these challenges and difficult issues surrounding us? What stance should we take? I think we need to step back and ask ourselves a couple questions. I believe this will help. First of all, I think we have to ask ourselves, what's motivating me? What is motivating me to write this about gay marriage or to say this about this thing that's happening or about that group or this person? What's the motivation at the core of my heart? Why am I trying to convey this message? Reevaluate, is it because you really love or you're judging or you're angry or you want revenge or it's your flesh? How can you tell what is motivating you? The scripture tells us how. Remember it says the fruit of the spirit is love. That's the first word. There should be a colon there, not a hyphen or a, or a semicolon. Manifested in joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. When these are present within us, in our engagements with other people, and I've had to learn this, admittedly, we all have to, whether we're face-to-face -face with them or we're in social mania or whatever it is, we know we are operating from God's will when that love, that fruit of the Spirit is abiding and motivating us and moving us to do what we're doing. Finally, we have to also remember that we don't war against flesh and blood. That's clear in Scripture. Our wars as Christians are against spiritual darkness in high places, and we beat them, we overcome them, we thwart them by love. That's how Jesus overcame Satan, was by love. God so loved the world, he sent his son. When his son was here, he loved. And it's by love that we win the war. It is not by anything else. What does this love look like? Well, I'm gonna share an example, excuse the anecdotal story. I had the opportunity to see Love in Action last Saturday as I was in the Long Beach Airport waiting to depart for Salt Lake in the afternoon. Uh, I was inside the terminal with all the other people, about 100 people waiting to get on board, and there was 
a scene going on outside on the tarmac that all of us were watching. A father was making every attempt possible to help his teenage son get on a plane that the son did not want to get on. I mean, every step this guy made up the tarmac, he was terrified. He was clinging. And I watched his dad go and stand face to face with him as they walked up sideways up the, up the ramp. And he would, sit, he would take his hand and he'd go like this. And his son would take his hand and he'd put there. And they'd take a step together and then they'd move all the way up, all the way up. Get, they would get five feet from the door of the plane and the son would look around and turn and, and head back down. And over and over and over again, we watched this. In time, the crowd who was observing this tug of war of wills inside the terminal, they started to cheer when he would get close to the door, be like, come on, come on, you can make it, come on. And then when he'd turn around, they'd be, we'd be like, oh, and sigh. But the father was an amazing example of love because he never seemed to care that anybody else was waiting. He didn't seem to care that the staff were around holding clipboards and, and looking at their watches. He didn't care that it was taking the son a long time to figure this out. They must have gone up and down that ramp 15 to 20 times. And the father never lost patience. He never gave up. He never screamed. He never called the boy names. He continued to work to get his son on board. It must have been an hour. I'm not kidding you, an hour. And the boy ultimately refused to get on the plane. And he walked, he just rocked off and, they, and then they came and just walked with him. But here's the amazing thing that I saw in that. And these are pictures I took of it from my phone. I saw the father after the son refused to get on that plane, come up beside him with a smile, put his arm around his boy and walk together and love and hug him and joke with him and laugh with him, even though he gave his all to get him inside. The second thing I learned is that within the terminal, people were either cheering for this guy to have success, but there were people who would say, someone ought to kick that kid's ass and just throw him in the plane. You know, I gotta get to Salt Lake. It's, you know, I'm really getting tired of this. What is this? And everybody was, you know, people were showing their true colors about what was going on. And it was a fantastic example. I couldn't help but see Jesus in this situation, walking every one of us up that ramp and trying and encouraging all of us to get on board. Come on. And, and I saw this effort to get this guy who just was terrified. I see God trying to bring all of us on board, homosexuals too. He wants all of us on board. He does not want to exclude anyone. When we get in the rhetoric of pointing fingers and the hate speech and all that stuff, I understand the fear. I understand all the prejudice. Everybody has prejudices. But as Christians, we have to remember God wants to bring us up and put us on board. All of us, no matter where we are. Because remember, he took us the way we were, didn't he? When he saved us. As we were. And he saved us and he said, come on now. And that is what he does with everybody. If we think we have the right to say, not with this group or not with that group, we're getting it all wrong. And with that, how about a word of prayer? Father, we seek you and we thank you for your son. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray for those who volunteer their time have for years their time and energy and effort to keep the, the program going, the uh, church going, Bible studies, everything else. For all those who uh, are in our studio audience, those who are watching at home, who will watch on the archives, help us to understand your truths. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, April 7th, almost two months ago, three months ago, we were having a discussion about religious authority under the auspices of Sola Scriptura. That's where we left off before we got sidetracked with Matt Slick and a bunch of other things. We talked about how the Catholic view to authority 
and we talked what it was, and we talked about the Protestant view to authority, and we talked about the Restorationist view to authority, and we showed that every one of these groups, they demanded conformity to their respective views, and in those groups, there are good people who love the Lord. They all claim to have the ability to prove that they actually get the authority from one historical legend or another that they've created. They all have the appeal to the Bible to claim that they are in harmony with its tenets on how they approach it, and the other groups are not. And they all refuse or resist, and they even mock the other group's views. And this has been going on in the, under the name of Christ for a long, long time. In the midst of all these appeals to authority, using the Bible and biblical history to justify their positions, the reality is God has been in control of his church and believers by his spirit, not by the written manual and not men who have controlled the interpretation of, those, of the manual. Quite frankly, I think we have to seriously continue and ask ourselves, how has our use of the manual, has it done more to unite people or has our use of the Bible done more to divide people? That's the question. Think about it seriously and let me ask it again. Has our use, now notice I'm emphasizing that because I'm not saying there's anything errant with the Bible and what's present for us. It's fine. It's great. I love it. But has our use and interpretation of the Bible done more to divide believers in Jesus, followers of God, or to unite? Again, the problem is not the written manual. I have to say that it's us and how we use the word. It's our understanding of its place and purpose. And that lends to it being seen improperly and used improperly. So I'm going to turn to a map right now that is very poorly written. Uh, I just drew it to try to give you an example. And I want to I use the map to kind of help you illustrate where the manual came from instead of just listening and believing. It just came to us and we had it and it's always been there and it's our guide, okay? We get the idea that the New Testament was written uh, to lead the post-apostolic church. And it was all there to lead the post-apostolic church. So let's look at some of the basic facts about it. Check out John Robinson's book, Reading the New Testament, Revisiting uh, the New Testament books. So let me just show you this. I need a pen. Just when I think I'm prepared. Okay. So here is Israel. This brown area represents land. This is, this is Italy, the boot. Okay. And here's Rome. And then we have Nicopolis, we have Corinth, we have Ephesus, we have Antioch, we have Israel. Okay, the distance between Rome and Jerusalem is about 3,000 miles. Okay, and the way you get there is they would go this route and then cross over by ship. That's a lot of distance. And you're talking about they would walk, if they walked, it was talking about uh, 18 miles a day maybe. If they were on horseback or mule, it would be about 25 or 30 miles a day. So we know that these areas were very important to what books were written in the New Testament. All right? Now, let me just start right here. We know in Israel that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, James, and Jude were probably all written from here. And we know in Antioch that Galatians was written here. That's a 300-mile distance. That's like from Salt Lake City to St. George. Okay? Well, that's some distance when you've got to walk or you've got to ride a donkey. But there's some distance just between those one book. Okay? Did all these books in Israel get to Antioch quickly that were written here? Or did the Galatians get down to Israel quickly? Did Galatians written in Antioch get over to the believers in Rome quickly? How, then you have to talk about scribal writing. You have to talk about interpretation. You have to talk about the other books. So we know that Acts, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Hebrews, 2 Timothy, and Philemon were all written in Rome. And so that is, that is kind of sequestered by a lot of water down uh, at the top of the boot. And then Necropolis, we know that 1 Timothy and Titus was written there. And then at Corinth, we have Romans, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. On the Isle of Patmos, which is right in here, 
in this area, we have uh, John and Revelation. And then jumping over to Ephesus, we have 1st and 2nd and 3rd John and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Acts 13 through 15, and Acts is a debate as to where it was all written. Okay, you got all that? So, Nicopolis to Antioch is 1,200 miles. So we are separated by a lot of space. We're hindered by road and travel. We don't have telecommunications at all. We have very little in terms of communications. All we have is the ability to write on papyrus or whatever they had at that time to copy that and to pass it on. I get all that. Now, before we go to the phone lines, I want to really quickly run through some dates and how they relate to the, the construction. All these books written, okay? And let's all assume that they were all written by, I believe, before 70 AD, because I have a preterist view, but you might say 100 AD. I don't know. That's debatable. I think they were all written before 70 AD. So, point one, when the New Testament writers spoke of Scripture, when you read about Scripture in the New Testament, they were talking about the Old Testament. That's what they were talking about. They were not talking about the New Testament with one exception. Peter did say that Paul's writings hard to be understood, and he did refer to them as Scripture. Okay? So we know that Peter was saying, I agree with what Paul says, even though the stuff he writes is tough to be understood. But typically in the New Testament, when we read about Scripture, uh, for the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, that was talking about the Old Testament, not the New Testament yet. All right? What did Christian believers have? Maybe one or some of the letters, maybe three or four of the letters, maybe eight or ten of the letters, but they certainly had the full amount of the Holy Spirit as it fell on the day of Pentecost and converted 3,000 souls. The point-blank question we have to ask was when was the New Testament agreed upon in terms of content and available to the majority of believers after the apostolic church and beyond? When did they have the core writings available to them? Gathered from Rome, copied. Gathered from Corinth, copied. Gathered from Nicopolis, copied. Ephesus, copied. Antioch, copied. Israel, copied. Into a set for all the believers of the church at that time to be able to uh, go to. Now we could say, well, they only needed one copy in every area, only one church. In That's probably true. But I want to know, one, when were they agreed upon? And two, when was that full amount available to them? These two points are very important because today we use the entirety of the Bible, right? And we establish ourselves, and if the entirety of the Bible was not available, then it was incomplete, and therefore it was inferior. All right? So, I mean... We take the whole Word of God and not just some parts of it, right? We have to take the whole wor Word of God to understand what the Word is saying. If we just take one book or one set of passages and we don't use them against other sets of passages, we have an inferior understanding of what the Word is telling us. So we need the whole Word of God, and Christians agree with that. Anyone who argues that the epistle to, the, to Ephesus would have been enough for the believers to have does so just to win an argument. They are not doing it reasonably or logically. They ignore the fact that we would never allow Christians today to say, I don't accept any of the books of the Bible except the uh, Ephesians. That's the only book I accept. What would we say? We'd say, oh, no, 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 no. In order to understand Ephesians contextually, you have to have all the other books in place, right? So we can't say during the early church period, if they just had access to one book, it was sufficient. The Holy Spirit certainly sufficient. Certainly. And whatever they did have, certainly the Holy Spirit worked with them. But I'm trying to point out that's the key to our Christian walk. It is not the sola scriptura that the Protestants came up with later. So if we're going to claim that as a whole it is God's guide to believers, we need to know when its contents were agreed upon and when those contents were made available to the Christian body. Then we take the date of the death of John, the oldest living apostle, let's say it was 100 AD, and we mark the date the Bible contents were both agreed upon and available, and we have to ask what guided the believers in Jesus between these two dates, okay? 
My purpose is to show that the claims of sola scriptura are fallacious and, uh, and they lead to division, not to unity. That we are not under the letter, but live according to the spirit and appeal to the letters. And I appeal to the letters probably as much as any pastor in the state when it comes to teaching. I appeal to the letters as much or more. I believe in it. But uh, they are here to supplement what God is doing by his spirit in our hearts and to teach us to grow. So, as a means to kind of highlight some of the facts taken from church history now, let me wrap it up with this. I'm going to rattle off some things that play into the idea that the New Testament was readily known and available in the early church. The things I'm going to share with you are going to show that is not true. Around 80 AD, a book called the Didache was written. It is considered still today part of the Apostolic Fathers' writings. It contained heresy. I mention this to show how difficult knowing what was true back then was. The Didache was accepted as an apostolic father's writing. Sorry, it has problems. Ever hear of Clement, the fourth bishop of Rome? He wrote something called the Letter of the Romans to the Corinthians, also part of the apostolic fathers. Not canon. Why not canon? Because there were errors in it. Around 100 AD came the Epistle of Barnabas. Have you ever heard of that? Apostolic Father writing. At the same time, the Epistle of Jude, which is in our Bibles today, was discounted because it quotes from the book of Enoch, and they didn't allow it in our Bible. But the, the, the Epistle of uh, Barnabas was accepted at that time. Between 100 and 150, we got the Apocryphon of James, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gospel of James, Infancy Gospel of Thomas, Secret Gospel of Mark, and there's a group called the Jesus Seminar that uses those books and calls it the Complete Gospels. Okay? Did any of these influence Christian thought? Or were they just completely known to be uh, heretical and we, they just knew right away that every single letter that was written in Corinth or in Rome or any of these other places were what was true? They didn't. They weren't sure. That's why I'm trying to say is that they have the Holy Spirit guiding and that's living in the hearts of people to tell them, Jesus is it. These other things we have to sift and sort through. 110 to 130, Papias, the Bishop of Hierapolis, wrote expositions of the sayings of the Lord, widely quoted by apostolic fathers. They would take that Papias writing and they would quote him. Why? Why not quote the New Testament itself? Why would they quote someone else's book called the Expositions of the Saints of the Lord and not just quote the book itself? Because the book itself was not there. It wasn't known. That was 130 AD. 160 Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, wrote Letter to the Philippians, also quoted by the Apostolic Fathers. Why weren't the Apostolic Fathers quoting Paul and Peter and James? Because no one knew yet what exactly was acceptable and what was not. In, eight, in 15, at 150 A.D., the Shepherd of Hermas, have you ever heard of that? That is considered one of the Apostolic Fathers' writings, the Shepherd of Hermas, was written in Rome, quoted by the Apostolic Fathers, contains crazy stuff. Crazy. Didn't make it into the Bible, thank God. We know why. Nevertheless, it was part of the canon of the people of the time who didn't know otherwise. 150 to 200, three other books were composed. The Unknown Berlin Gospel, the Gospel of Peter, Oxyrhynchus Gospels, and the Dialogue of the Savior, all more things to muddy the water that were cast into the mix. As early as 170, Dionysus, the Bishop of Corinth, Dionysus, this is 170 only, the Bishop of Corinth, Dionysus, claimed that the Christians were changing and faking his letters as they had changed and faked the Gospels. That was his claim, and he was the bishop of, uh, of Corinth at the time. In 170, a guy named Tatian blended the Gospels into one. It's called the Diatessaron, and it means harmony. Was that acceptable, to take all of them and bring them into one and call it harmony? He did it. It was acceptable then. By 185... All the way through 350 AD, listen to me closely. 
Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 3rd John were completely excluded from what we consider the inspired writings of the New Testament today. But the wisdom of Solomon, the apocalypse of Peter were included. So you wander about and we say it was available, we had it, it was known, and all the real believers had access to, they didn't. They, we didn't know what it was. Again, I'm trying to argue against Sola Scriptura. There's a point in this. It is not to diminish the Bible. It is to diminish the idea that this is what defines everything. When we cannot understand it completely, it's got to be by the Spirit and love. In 199 to 217, Caius, Presbyter of Rome, rejected Revelation. No, Revelation. He said it was written by the Gnostic Serenthius. So, I don't believe it was written by the Gnostic Serenthius. I think history shows it was written by John. But there's questions to that that was thrown up there. So they said, don't even put it in. Now, can you read the New Testament? Can you read the Old Testament? Daniel and all these books about eschatology without the book of Revelation? I, I don't think so. 223, Tertullian, he steps in. He becomes known as the father of the Latin church. Now Latin steps in to the game, right? Why is he called that? Because he came up with a Latin term called Trinitas. And he came up with Tris Personae and Una Substantia and Vedas Testamentum and Novum Testamentum, Old and New Testament. Of one substance, Tertullian came up with. Why not God? How come God didn't come up with Trinitas, Tres Personae, and, and Una Substantia in his book, in the book that we trust? But we had to let Tertullian come and tell us what it meant, and then we passed that along and down as that, as that grew? Listen, around 250, Origen said that Jesus and God were one substance. That was his quote. They are one substance. The Greek words, homousia, the whole thing. By the way, Eusebius, church historian, tells us that Origen castrated himself based off his understanding of Matthew 19.12. Now think about this. The man cut off his junk based off his interpretation of one passage of Scripture. Okay? Okay? And we accept his views on the ontology of God. That's true! Constantine, 312, walking along, looks up into the sky. What does he see? He sees the cross of Christ and the words, conquer. Conquer. Does that sound like a Christian message? Jesus' message was love, die to self, humility. Constantine gets conquer in the sky next to a cross. And guess what he did? He freaking conquered. Constantine established his toleration of Christianity, which brought in a whole bunch of unbelievers. It became the state church. Unbelievers into the body functioning in administrative positions and in theological positions who had no concept of what it was. They just wanted to belong to the empire Constantine was doing. A Lateran palace was given to Pope Milites by Constantine. What does that tell you? A palace was given to a pope by Constantine. Automatically, we can see where we are. We have not yet established what books of the Bible are, are acceptable yet. That hasn't happened. Constantine in 321 says, Sunday is a day of rest. We have Sunday laws throughout the South. So Utah has Sunday laws still because Constantine said it's a day of rest. Total misinterpretation of Scripture. Jesus is our rest. He's our rest. There's no days, Sabbath days, and yet here we are. Yeah. You know? Church of the Nativity, built by Constantine. And then around 330 AD, Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, is the first to cite the 27 books of our modern New Testament as canonical. That's 330. If the last apostle John died at 100, that leaves 230 years of Christian believers not knowing which books were acceptable and which were not. Don't tell me they knew which were. They may have recognized some as having value. They may have believed in certain ones, but they could have believed wrongly. Even the early church fathers were mixed up on the issues, so mixed up that they wrote their own epistles and their own compilations of Scripture to try to clear the mess up. In 363, Council of Laodicea, it was decided Revelation is not inspired, and they limited the 27, the 27 books to 26 in the New Testament. 
and then all the New Testament books that we have were included in 400 AD in Jerome's Vulgate, the Latin version, edit his edition of the Bible. Thank you, Jerome. You gave us the Latin Vulgate. We've got it down. We know what we're doing now. But where is the prayer of Manassas in our Bible today? That was in the Latin Vulgate. Oh, where's first and second Esdras? Where's Tobit? Where's Baruch? Where's first and second Maccabees? They were all in the, the Latin Vulgate. They're still in the Douay-Rheem Bible that the Catholics use. If you were a Syrian Christian, your New Testament, written in Aramaic, had only 22 books, by the way, and the Syrian New uh, Testament is quoted often by scholars. It didn't have 2 Peter, 1st and 2nd uh, and 3rd John, Jude, or Revelation. People got all over me for saying, hey man, I wish Revelation wasn't even in the book, and people went ballistic, you heretic, you're dangerous. Come on, I'm not alone in this. There are people far more closer to the, to the deal who said the same thing. By 451, the Council of Chalcedon, the Fourth Ecumenical declared that Jesus is, listen, a hypostatic union. That's where we get that term, both human and divine in one, known as the Chalcedonian Creed, and hypostatic union of Christ, made up by a bunch of men. Why not sola scriptura anymore? And yet we recite uh, a hypostatic union all the time as Protestants. 49 years later, something happened. Incense was introduced to the church in terms of burning. 500 AD, they started burning incense. So you tell me how much of an effect the word and, and in its complete totality there in the early church had on the comings and goings. It seemed to not have much at all. In fact, it just seemed to get a bunch of men to come forward and make a bunch of conjecture about how we have to read the book today. Now understand, I know there were good insights. I know these, these men love the Lord, many of them. And I know that things were brought forward that were of value then. But it does not mean they can dictate how we read and understand the word today by the Spirit. And it doesn't mean that we have to divide over what this book says since the book's contents were up to so much discretion and scrutiny and difficulty for so long. And that's stopping at 500. Next week, we're going to pick up the history 1,000 years later. So that's what happened. We have the Latin Vulgate. 1,000 years later, we start to get into Luther. And then Luther said, hey, no incense but let's start 2,000 different churches. Come on, man. When are we going to regroup and say, the Bible is the word of God. We have trouble understanding and interpreting it. We are going to defer to him by the spirit. We're gonna love each other and we're not gonna make mountains out of molehills. That's the whole point. Let's open up phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Take a look at this. We'll come back and take your calls. One, two, three, one, two, three. All right, before we go to Jarrett, New Orleans, we have an online uh, quote or a question. Hey, Sean, I love your show. My question is, 
I myself am a born-again Christian, and my bride-to-be is a Mormon from a firm-footed Mormon family. Can't stand those firm-footed ones. Should we get married? From Kyle in Pocatello, Idaho, he says, thank you. Listen, Kyle, um, I would have to say absolutely not. Uh, and here's why. Um, marriage is tough. And it, every difference that comes to the table, whether squeezing toothpaste from the bottom or uh, you know, how you put your socks away becomes an item of contention usually at some point in time in the relationship. You don't need religious fervor to enter that. The question may not be, you might say, well, I get along great with her. We love each other and we respect each other's stuff. That's not the problem. The problem is when the kids come along. And then you start saying, well, how will they be baptized? And you got to decide if you're going to baptize them by the LDS priesthood or you as a born-again Christian, do you even care? And this stuff is just, it's just not good. That's why the scripture is pretty clear when it talks about, listen, don't be unequally yoked in this thing. However, that being said, I know plenty of people who were Christian and married, and some of the people uh, became Christian as a result of marrying a Christian man. And I know vice versa. I know people who have married as Christians to LDS people, and they became LDS. So, you know, when it comes to love and romance, God, I believe he is in charge. You are free to do what you're going to do. I would advise you to be careful of that and not do it. But, um, you know, the Lord, if you put your trust and faith in him, and you really are dead set on doing that, Distrust him and cling to, cling to him throughout the marriage because you're going to have rough times. And so when people tell you you shouldn't do it, it's to try to avoid that. But God works outside of our ways. If you came to our church and you'd married an LDS person, you'd be more than welcome. And I hope that's the same case wherever you might go with her. All right, let's go to Jarrett in New Orleans. Jarrett, you are on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you. Got some good information on tonight's show. I appreciate you sharing that with us. You're welcome. What's, uh, can I ask what your sources are for the information that you got? Oh, uh, just uh, books and research, and I didn't cite any of them. I used to cite stuff, and I realized it just takes so much of my time. If you want to search it out, you can look. If you want to challenge, I suggest you challenge everything, uh, because I do get things wrong. I don't have any of them notated. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not challenging anything. I just was wondering. Yeah, you, you should. You should though. But there is so much on the early church, and I mean, you could go through and just kind of take the sound bites of each one of those points, and just go and research one. Just take one and research it, and I think you'll find it's it's going to be pretty pretty true. Okay. So, um, do you think that the Bible we have today is complete and is what God wants us to have? You know, I'm of that opinion, but then again, you got to ask yourself, which Bible? You know, because there are Bibles that contain the Apocrypha. Uh, there, and so, are you talking about that one? And then you got to talk about which translation? And then you have to talk about, you know, which language it's been written in? And then you got to look at the, the sources from which the translation came. Was it from uh, Westcott and Hort? Or was it from the uh, Revised Version? And those are two, the Textus Receptus from Erasmus. So you have to look at that. And so it's not just a thing of which Bible as, oh, come on. It really is which Bible. And that is another reason why Sola Scriptura is not something we should build our house on. We should build our house on the Bible is the Word of God, and we read it by the Spirit. And when we have differing views, we trust that love and God's uh, enlightenment will guide us through that and not stand hard on this, this type of thing. That's, that's my point. So what Bible do you use? Uh, you know, I use the King James because that's what I cut my teeth on as a Mormon. I use uh, the Thompson Chain Version because it uses the Bible to tie it to other Bible uh, verses. Uh, but a man is the one, or a woman, is the one who did those chains, so it's subject to their interpretation. I also like the interlinear Bibles, which show you in the Greek polyglots. And I check the Greek quite a bit in, in when I uh, teach. But, you know, people hate the King James. A lot of people can't understand it. They love the NIV. And I, I have trouble understanding the NIV. So I guess it's, again, there's another subjective thing. 
What were you raised in? What can you understand? I mean, how about the Bible in Braille? How can we even check that to see if it's correct? <laughs> yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, me either. Yeah. That's a good one. So, so um, I read the King James also. Um, so you you're, you believe that, that all the books in the King James are the inspired Word of God? Yeah, I believe that the books that we have are the inspired Word of God because God inspires the, the words in our mind. I think that, I mean, I'm sure I read somewhere that Hitler read the Bible at one time. Did it, was Hitler reading the inspired Word of God? I think Hitler was reading words on a page. And see, the Holy Spirit has to work in conjunction with the words on the page for those who are seeking truth for it to, to work. And if those don't come together, then you have a very scholarly approach, void of the Spirit, or you have a very spirit approach that just ignores what is said. They have to kind of come together. Okay, because I thought you were saying that they don't need to come together. No. They just need the Spirit. Absolutely, they, they have to come together. Not Spirit only. Don't get me wrong when I go after Sola Scriptura, but Sola Scriptura does not talk about Sola Spiritus. That's not one of the Protestant claims. Sola Fide is, the faith, and all the Sola Gracia, grace, but not Sola Spiritus. And, but they say Sola Scripture. They should say they come together, and that's my whole point, and it's one of the reasons why we have so many divisions. Well, I, I don't know the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, you know, to the letter, but the way I've heard it explained before uh -huh. is that it doesn't mean that they don't believe in the work of the Holy Spirit alongside with the, with the right. Bible. Yeah, and I understand that interpretation. The problem is the words sola, scriptura, say the word alone. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's why I make I the point. That's why I don't say that I believe in sola scriptura, because, you know, on the, on the surface of it, that sounds like what you're saying. Yeah. So, but you don't, I mean, you listed a lot of other gospels and epistles and things are i mean do you believe any of those are the inspired word of god and that they should be in our bible today you know here comes my liberality i think that god can speak to us through a lot of ways uh I, and I, I i i don't think they necessarily have to be included in the bible but if i found some uh something that was like one of the apocryphal books tobit and i started reading it and I found that it inspired me in certain ways, fine. When I read, uh, when I read Herman Hess, I get inspired. When I read uh, Norman Denny's translation of Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, I weep tears of joy for Jesus. Uh, when I listen to Metallica sometimes, I am lifted up to God. So I'm sorry, I don't mean to bring that all into the Bible. I, I'm just saying that God uses what he uses. That's another problem with Sola Scriptura is that someone can say, you know, I, I just really believe this, and people will go, okay, let's look at chapter and verse, you know, let's prove you're wrong, and let, let's just let people, you know, study the Bible in love and kind of grow together. It's just a, an approach I'm trying, Jarrett, to, uh, to get us to just step back a little bit. Just step back and let's just try to make some reasonable decisions on how we treat each other and how we study this beautiful, perfect, book in in terms of the spirit to me and best i can say my friend okay hey thanks for watching jared god bless you okay thanks bye bye he sounds like he's seeking it's there's no answers for me you know this is my view on how it how it could be and how it might be and you're going to have your view and just like there's people sitting in the audience at home right now or in here and they have a bible in their hand and they're going to go to a verse and they're going to read it and i'm going to read the verse the same verse in mine, and you're going to have an NIV and an ASB and an NASB and this, and it's going to read a little bit differently. So the Spirit has to provide, and what is this fruit of the Spirit? Love. That's the whole point. Chris in Houston, Texas. Chris, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, thank you for taking my call, Sean. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Hey, listen, I have a, a comment for you that I think piggybacks with what you've been talking about tonight. Yes. Um, so when I, and this is my own experience, um, when I was in the uh, LDS church, uh, was for about two years, I found that their overly rigid 
adherence to the strict letter of what their scriptures say really killed any spirit in their church or churches. Um, did, did you find this at all when you were active? Absolutely. Um, I found that it was uh, just dead. Uh, they're the spirit of God, so to speak. There was no inspiration. There was no uh, Holy Spirit, if you will. And it wasn't until I moved out of the LDS Church that I actually found uh, more of a genuine expression of the heart of God. Praise God. Um, now, uh, my question to you then is, is do, you, do you find this to be relevant to what you're discussing tonight? I do. I, I, extremely relevant. Because um, in a church, forget the LDS for a minute, but in any church that is going to dogmatically make stances on the written word toward things, and there are some things our core values, but dogmatically make stances. The more they make, the more legalistic they are, and the more legalistic they are, the less love there is, and the less love there is, the more death there is. And so that is, you're, you're right on topic with this. When there is the spirit of freedom and liberty in Christ to read and study together and have varying opinions, and love presides, you have the spirit abiding within the people that come to the church and not the death. Well, I, I couldn't have said it better myself, to be honest with you. And, and to be quite frank with you, I think whomever it is that wrote the um, temple ceremony actually wrote in there that it was uh, made of man and that there's no spirit. Let me explain. It's summed up in one phrase, and it's by the best actor in that old film. It was the uh, devil guy. Uh, he was actually entertaining. Nobody else was in the film. And uh, I mean that, too. He yeah. says, oh, you'd like re uh, religion, uh, would you, uh, that's mixed with the philosophies of men. Yeah. That's exactly what the LDS Church is. Yeah. I, I, there's no uh, false advertising there. Yeah, it's... And, uh, it's... It was, no, that just stuck in my head the whole time because I'm reading it, and I'm like, this is men... You know, like you go into a, a police station in the old movies, and they, they're interrogating people, and it's a big light shining in the eyeballs. Yeah. That's what I was subject to every day Yeah, in the church. Did you drink tea? None of your business. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. Chris, really appreciate you watching, my friend. Thank you. Have a good night. God bless you. Bye-bye. Listen, uh, you know, we haven't I have a question here. Uh, are you ever going to go back to doing shows on just the LDS? Yeah, probably. Um, once we uh, go through and we show that we are not just out against Mormons, we are out against any system that does not help people set the captives free and let them walk in liberty in Christ and let them feel loved when they come to church. That's what we are, whether they abide by what the church is doing or not, the love needs to prevail. And so we're going to keep going on this until I kind of drain it dry. And then once it's drained dry, we probably will go back to the LDS. And let me just say this clearly. Mormonism, I have not stepped back on it being wholly diabolical. Forget it. It's diabolical in its tenets and its doctrines. Um, it, it absolutely takes the heart of people and it destroys them with their praxis and with their doctrines. So don't think that I've become soft on them, but I have become soft on the people who are trapped in it. And it breaks my heart more, and I've calmed down because I've driven people away from Christ by my rhetoric and back into the, uh, the arms of Mormonism because they, 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 they felt scared. And so I have uh, changed some of my approaches, but don't get me wrong. Um, when I look at churches, Mormonism is the worst in terms of what it does, except for maybe Jehovah's Witnesses or fundamentalist Islam, you know, but they're right up at the top of what they're doing to their people. But down below it, coming down in lesser form in the Christian churches, we have the same stuff. It's not as bad because when a Christian says, you know, I'm tired of being a Baptist, they can walk across the street and be a Presbyterian and the Baptist, you know, they might say, oh, well, you should follow us or something, but it's not bad. You leave the Mormon church, it's a, it's a different story. So the Christians aren't nearly as bad in how people can transfer and move along unless they're a cultic Christian. But so I, I know I've been hard on Christianity because I care about it. 
And I care about the people who are in the LDS church coming out and stepping into any form of control. And it's not liberal. Christ came to set the captives free, and he did it. He does it. And that's all I'm fighting for, really. Okay, we have an email here. I have come to the conclusion, uh, no name associated with it, that the Holy Spirit does not witness theology only of Christ and fruits of love by others. Many Christians follow a different theologian that interprets the scriptures differently. Yes, I know it's mostly on non-essentials, but many Christians do not treat it as such with others. They still act like theirs is the truth, like the LDS do. Same thing we've been talking about. That has been my experience. I'm tired of the endless debates and the judgment of others over such things. I'm a lover of the New Testament, but can't embrace all of the old. Let me stop there for a second. Would you accept a Christian who says, I love Jesus Christ. He's the author and finisher of my faith. Uh, he saved me. His shed blood did it. I believe in his resurrection, but I don't believe in the Old Testament at all. Now, what would you say? We had that question come up the other day, and I said, look, you want, you, want to, you want to not believe in the Old Testament at all? That's your choice. I think you should. I think there's a lot there for you to learn and understand. But if you don't want to believe the Old Testament at all, do you believe Christ Jesus came, was born, died, resurrected from the grave, and his blood saves you? Yes, I do. Well, have at it. Do what you're going to do. That's between you and God. I disagree, but I'm certainly not going to break fellowship with them because they don't accept the Old Testament. So what if someone comes along and says, you know, I believe Jesus, everything about Jesus, and I believe God sent his only begotten son, but I don't believe in this book, and I don't believe in that book, and I don't believe in this teaching, and I don't believe in that teaching. What would you say? Well, you're not saved. Or would you say, you know, that's between you and God. I say it's between them and God. If someone came and said, Jesus is not Christ, Jesus didn't resurrect, Jesus, I'd say, well, you have a problem with the title Christian. You have a problem with the idea that you're a Christian because that's what the gospel is and that's what saves you. It's by his shed blood and faith and all the other. So you, I'm trying to get through to help you understand what we're trying to talk about here. People have the right to see and believe things differently who are great brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we need to err on the side of love as they do. He says, my opinion would turn over some in their graves. I believe in Christ and have my faith in Christ that he is God and accept his shed blood on the cross for my, I accept his shed blood on the cross for my sins, but I cannot accept certain things in the Old Testament. I'm sad to see so many Christians say our country is going to be cursed over gay marriage when God has not cursed other parts of the world over it, has not cursed other parts of the world over wars and bloodshed with innocent children dying for years. It's my opinion if there is going to be a curse, it would be over hypocrisy and greed and not loving one another or taking care of the poor. God did not step over the Holocaust. Why do Christians think he would curse over gay marriage, over years of bloodshed of innocent children in that? I can't take the political agendas in the church. I'm alone in my faith in Christ, but with him, I'm not alone. I think it's a great cry for what's in the hearts of so many people today saying, come on, you know. Okay, uh, how much time, D? Oh, one, he says. Uh, I've got a truckload. One and a half, he changes his opinion. Uh, never ask him for an estimate on something. It's never the same. Just kidding. One thing, let's just wrap that, this up. Erasmus, just jumping ahead for next week, he was a humanist. Uh, not a real strong Christian if he was one at all, uh, but he was great with the Greek language. And in 1516, he produced the first edition of the Greek New Testament in English. Uh, and he didn't include a passage in John that talks about the Trinity. And he said, I didn't include it because it wasn't in the Greek manuscripts. The Latin theologians went absolutely berserk and Erasmus said, look, it's not in any of the Greek manuscripts. They said, yes, but it's part of the church doctrine on the Trinity. And Erasmus said, if you can show me in a Greek manuscript, I'll put it in my next edition. Guess what? The Latin church gave him a Greek manuscript that had the passage in, second, in, in 1 John. And Erasmus complied. Just a little true story about that. It's called the Johannine comma, and it's a passage that 
It's the only passage in Scripture that speaks of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and uh, all that. And uh, very suspect as to how that got into the Holy Writ. Uh, we will talk more about this next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred.